A distinction that is made by good moral theology is that there are three things that make any deed, any free human choice that's subject to moral criteria, anything you can evaluate as a, as a human free choice, as distinct from just an animal instinct like breathing, uh, that make it good or bad. The act itself, the person's subjective motive or intention, and the situation or circumstances or world into which the act is inserted. And all three have to be right. Just as in any of the arts, all of its dimensions have to be right. You can't have a great novel that has great characters and a great plot and a stupid and shallow theme. Or a profound theme and interesting characters but a meaningless plot. Similarly, a human act, in order to be morally right in all its dimensions, you must do the right thing. And you must have the right motives. And you must do it in the right way, in the right circumstances. This is very basic moral theology. If I do the right thing for the wrong reason, if I give money to a beggar to show off, my motive makes my concrete moral deed sinful, even though I'm doing the right thing. If I do the right thing for the right motive, but in the wrong circumstances, if I make love to my wife, which is a good deed, and I do it out of love for her, which is a good motive, but do it when it's medically dangerous and it threatens her life, I'm doing an irresponsible thing. So all three have to work together. Three very popular, moral, simplistic, simple systems, three easy ways of thinking about morality, uh, some of them are more popular in one time and in another time, are legalism, subjectivism, and relativism. In Jesus' day, legalism was the popular thing, especially among the Pharisees. There's simply a list of rules. You're good if you obey them. You're bad if you don't. We obey them better than you, you do, so we're better than you are. Uh, secondly, much more popular in our time, subjectivism. As long as you're sincere, as long as you have loving motives, it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, and the third answer, also more popular in our time, is relativism. It's all relative to the situation. Uh, there are no absolutes. Everything changes. You just have to balance all the factors. Well, there's half-truth in each of those. Each of those three things is very important, and neither one excludes the other. So for any act, whether sexual or otherwise, to be good, it has to be good in all three ways. If it fails to be good in one of those three ways, there's something fundamentally defective about it. But it's very silly to contrast the three. That's like asking, is a play good because it has good characters, or is it good because it has a good plot? Then you have two schools of thought, the character school of thought and the plot school of thought. The plot school of thought are the objectivists, and they're the right wing. And the uh, character school of thought is the subjectivists, and they're the left wing. And they argue ideologically. What a stupid argument. Need it all. I think, to put it in ideological terms, which is misleading but inevitable, I think we should all have very conservative heads and very liberal hearts. At MIT, you know, they did an experiment. They tried to have a heart and brain transplant between a liberal and a conservative, and the operation was a failure for two reasons. First, they couldn't find any conservative who would give up his heart to a liberal, and secondly, they couldn't find any liberal who had any brains to give to a conservative. <laughs> so. also have to distinguish sins. There are a lot of sins. As Chesterton says, there are many angles at which you can fall, only one at which you stand upright. So the question is, if there is some sin called homosexual sin, used to be called sodomy after the city of Sodom, how does this compare with other sins? Is it worse, better, is it special? Another important distinction is between different forms of love. Obviously, sex has to do with, or is supposed to have something to do with love. Is love a single thing? We, English-speaking people, are very practical and pragmatic, and we're not very good at philosophy. Uh, the Greeks were very good at philosophy, and therefore, though they had a far smaller vocabulary than English, they had more distinctions for basic philosophical terms. For instance, they had four words for no, they had two words for time, and they have at least four words for love. Uh, two of those words are eros and agape. And agape, until the New Testament, 
meant something vague and generic like love in English. But once the New Testament was written, the word was deliberately used in a new, very specific sense. It's the love that Christ came into the world to, to show and to do and for us to do, radically new. Eros, on the other hand, means simply desire, not just sexual desire, but any human desire for anything. Eros is hunger. Uh, agape is, in a sense, the opposite. It's giving instead of taking. Neither of these in itself says anything about automatically good, automatically bad. But they're opposite forces, and we can make further distinctions within them. Uh, let's say a, a kind of a natural charity to give, which, let's say, parents have to their children versus a supernatural charity based on the, the very presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, a, a natural eros, a natural desire versus an unnatural desire. For instance, if I had an appetite to drink kerosene and eat mud, that would be an unnatural desire, unless I were a worm. Because human nature is not perfected by kerosene and mud, but it is by potatoes and wine. Most of these distinctions that I'm making are distinctions between things that are mixed together, in fact. That's why we have to make distinctions. There's no problem in making a distinction between the sky and the earth, because they're not mixed. But we have to make distinctions, like between the sin and the sinner, the act and the intention, or agape and eros, because in any one given human being, or in any one given human action, there's often a lot of stuff going on mixed together. So we have to make distinctions. And when we make moral judgments, we have to say, well, that's good, but that's bad. And that and that are not two distinct concrete entities, but two parts or dimensions of the same entity. That's why we have to make distinctions. All right, let's broaden our picture just a little bit and talk about sexuality in general. We are obviously sexual beings. I know, by the way, of a student, I heard of a student, who was a pure philosopher. And actually, there was such a student back in the, back in the 60s. He went to some university in America, I forget which, I, I know somebody who knew him. Uh, and he'd got a degree in philosophy. And uh, I asked, where is so-and-so? Oh, he's at the University of Toronto. I said, why the University of Toronto? He got a PhD in philosophy. Oh, yes, but he wanted another degree. He wanted a PhD in psychology, too. Why is that? Well, his philosophy courses led him to read Freud. And uh, I have a letter from him. He quoted the letter. I have discovered Freud, and Freud has convinced me that sex is very important. So I think I had better get a PhD on that, too. <laughs> okay, that's what a professor does, I suppose. Uh... Freud is absolutely right in seeing sex as not just one isolable dimension of our lives, like clothing or uh, alcohol or books, but rather something that permeates everything, like your age. If you're a three-year-old kid or if you're a 73-year-old adult, you may do the same things, but everything you do is done in a different way because it's colored in some way or other by the fact that you're very young or very old or somewhere in between. So I think Freud is right when he, when he teaches that sexuality is very important because it's, it's well, what, what is sometimes called pansexuality has two different meanings. On the one hand, to reduce everything to that dimension is... I think a mistake, but to see that dimension as somehow making a difference to everything that we do, however small, I think is not a mistake. I think sometimes if I died and woke up somehow reincarnated in another body, what kind of identity crisis would I have? I'm thinking, well, suppose I was Rip Van Winkle and I fell asleep for 20 years and I woke up and I was 20 years older. Well, that would be something of an identity crisis. Or if I died and I woke up and I was, uh, I had my racial identity changed. I was black or I was oriental. Well, that would be a bit confusing. 
But if I woke up and I found out that I was a woman, I think that would be much more confusing. I saw a book once in the 60s. Uh, it was a, a scatological novel called The Sexual Life of a Nun. And it was supposedly about affairs between nuns and priests and that sort of thing. I thought to myself, that's a perfectly good title. When a nun prays, she prays. When a priest prays, he prays. It makes a difference. Why is the language of the mystics almost always sexual? Why do the mystics use sexual intercourse as a natural analogy for mystical experience? Well, partly because it's ecstatic, partly because it has this inherent profound meaning to it, but also partly because the symbolism is very obvious. In the Christian and the Jewish and the Muslim traditions, God is never pictured as a woman. Even though those three religions are probably the three most pro-woman religions in the world. They both say, they all say very clearly that uh, the image of God is male and female. If you're a traditional Hindu, you have to wait until you're reincarnated as a male uh, to get uh, enlightenment. Females can't get enlightenment. And the same is true in some forms of Buddhism. Uh, there are goddesses as well as gods in almost every religion. Uh, those that are pantheistic or monistic usually see the feminine and the masculine as co-principles in the divinity. And those that are polytheistic or pagan usually have goddesses and gods. And the gods usually inhabit the heavens and the goddesses usually inhabit the earth. And therefore there are priestesses in these religions if there are priests. Uh, However, in the Jewish tradition, there were no priestesses. It was the only ancient religion in the world that had no priestesses and no goddesses. Why? Did Judaism liberate women more than any other religion? Yes, it did. Not sufficiently. It's a stage at a time. But women, though they had less rights than men under ancient Judaism, had certainly more rights there than anywhere else in the world. Or almost anywhere else in the world. Uh, well, what's going on here? Well, look at something else about the ancient Jews. Their notion of God was radically different than anybody else's. Why? Well, God created the world out of nothing. There's even a word in Hebrew that doesn't exist in any other ancient language. The word is barah. And only God is ever the noun that is associated with that verb. An ancient Jew would never say, a man created something. Only God could create something. A woman can't create something. Only God creates. Well, so what? What's the connection between this unique theology of one God who could create everything out of nothing on the one hand and the fact that Judaism didn't have priestesses and didn't have goddesses? Well, isn't it very obvious? Uh, a man comes into a woman from without as an other. Uh, man alone cannot procreate, neither can woman alone. It takes two to tango. So from the woman's point of view, the man is rather like God, the transcendent other. So if there's chauvinism in the Jewish tradition, it's female chauvinism. We're all women. We look at God from the earthly point of view. We have wombs and we can't impregnate ourselves. We need the transcendent God to impregnate us, which is a natural image of what happens in religious experience, especially mystical experience. Seems to me that's the most obvious reason for the exclusively masculine language about God. Granted, cultural forces play into that. Granted, this is vastly misused. Granted, the scripture itself forecasts male chauvinism. When uh, God says to uh, Eve, as one of the curses of the fall, your husband is going to lord it over you. Because he's stronger, he's going to misuse that and oppress, of course. He'll lord it over everybody and everything. But despite that, there's a, a holding of the line with this sexual imagery. God is always male and never female. And now the Christian tradition inherits that. Because as Pope Pius XII uh, reminded Christians, we are first of all Jews before we're Christians. Because our Lord was. Jesus never told anybody to stop being Jews and become something else. He said, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Almost every major Christian heresy in the history of the church detaches Jesus from his Jewish background. It's ahistorical. Muslims, who have a somewhat different but somewhat similar tradition, have a, 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 a somewhat similar but also somewhat different reason for calling God male rather than female. But they would agree, I think, with most of what I just said. 
Well, what in the world does that have to do with human sexuality? Well, it means that the divine plan has at least two important ingredients in it. Number one, there's supposed to be two sexes, not one. And number two, they're supposed to be equal and complementary, not oppressive and superior. There are two very popular philosophies about human sexuality, which seem to be as opposed as they could possibly be, but they share a common premise as an error. One is male chauvinism, the other is unisexism. The male chauvinist argues, men and women are inherently different, therefore men are superior to women. The unisexist argues, men and women are, men are not inherently superior to women, therefore men and women are not essentially different. The common premise that's the error of both is the assumption that if two things are different, one of them must be better than the other. Cats and dogs are different, bigger la différence. Why not men and women? Maybe the biggest change in the so-called sexual revolution, uh, to my mind, is philosophical rather than in terms of practice. We've always had difficulty obeying that commandment. It's rather easier to curb our appetite for too much to eat, let's say, than too much sexual pleasure, simply because the pleasure is much greater. So I don't think the sexual revolution is primarily there, though it obviously is. I think it's primarily philosophical. Our vision of the meaning of human sexuality has changed. The very word used to mean something you do. Excuse me, something you are. Now it means something you do. There's an old joke back in the 40s. I'm old enough to remember this. Uh, draft induction form. Uh, soldier signs it. Uh, question, sex, meaning gender. Uh, he fills in the blank. Often, please. The ambiguity between something you are and something you do is no longer there. Most people don't laugh at that joke anymore because they see sex as simply what you do. Gender has replaced the word sex as the word that designates what you are, male or female. The word gender used to apply to words, parts of speech. Nouns, in every language except English, had either fem feminine or masculine gender. So, I wonder whether it's not highly insulting for us to be reduced to parts of speech with regard to whether we're male or female, uh, and reducing sex to something you do Furthermore, we're a very activistic, externalistic, uh, achievement-oriented culture. The consciousness of our own internal being and internal worth seems to most modern North Americans very abstract and ethereal and contemplative and old-fashioned. Uh, and that, too, it seems to me, is highly insulting. I am nothing but what I do. Well, suppose what I do is nothing but take tolls at a, at a toll booth on the turnpike every day. I am a toll taker. I'm not a human being who happens to take tolls. I am a toll taker. To reduce what I am to what I do, I think is highly insulting. And I think that also applies to sexual activity. And we'll go into that more in detail later, but I want to just get these big pictures out and then make a few points and then shut up. I've already spoken, talked much too long. Sex, in turn, has to be seen in a larger context. It's natural, inherent, essential design and purpose and meaning and telos. You have to see it with a third eye, the eye that looks along things or into things, not just at things. Most ancient languages have two words for looking at. I don't know Hebrew except a few words, and I know there's two different words in Hebrew that means to look at a person. One of them means to look at the person's face or appearances. The other means to look into a person's heart. Uh, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, You know the commandments. Recite them. And he recites them. And he says, I, oh, I've kept all these perfectly from my youth up. You expect that. Here's a hypocrite. But the word then is Jesus looked into him and loved him. Here was a, a young man who had kept the law perfectly. And, and Jesus saw that because he looked into his heart. I believe the word is used also for the thief on the cross. Uh, when he said, uh, Lord, remember when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him. And I'm told the word means look into his heart and say, today you are with me in paradise. I think 
Jesus is not so much predicting his future geographical location. I think Jesus is seeing the paradise in his heart. Well, uh, if you have that third eye and you can look into things or along them, then you ask the question, what is it good for? What is its design? What is its purpose? What is its meaning? It's not just a thing. Deconstructionism, I think, is one of the most harmful philosophies in the entire history of human thought because it deliberately denies that. It says words are only things. It says with Archibald McLeish, a poem should not mean but be. A poem should be palpable and mute like globed fruit. Seems to me nothing could be further than the truth. Not only do words mean things, but things mean things. That gesture means something. My dog cannot understand it. I have a basset hound. He's very dumb. I try to train him to do basic things like uh, follow directions. Whenever I do that, he comes and sniffs my finger. Well, we've developed a kind of finger-sniffing mentality, which might be very useful in gathering scientific data, but we're more than scientists. We're poets. We want to know what words mean, and our own bodies are words. Tremendously significant. Any cell biologist will tell you there's more information in any, any, any one human cell than in all the encyclopedias and all the libraries in the world. So that's true of just one cell. The whole body is a, an immense information system. Well, read it. Follow it. It's a pointing finger. Once you see that epistemological point, once you make this general point about everything, quite apart from sexuality, namely that things have many layers of meaning inherent in them, once you agree with Shakespeare when he says to, uh, when he has Horatio, or rather Hamlet, say to Horatio, who didn't believe in ghosts, and then Horatio saw Hamlet's father's ghost, and he doesn't know what to say, Hamlet says, Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophies. There's a certain mentality that says that's wrong. There are fewer things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in our philosophies. That is, objective reality is much less than you think it is. We've got to be cynical. We've got to be skeptical. We've got to develop a hermeneutic of suspicion. We've got to start where Descartes starts, with universal doubt. And we've got to believe only the things that we can prove conclusively. You can't live that way. Simply impossible. You've got to do the opposite. You've got to do what Socrates does. He meets idiots who are wrong about everything and are totally clouded in their thought. He treats them as great scholars and says, let me learn from you. Let me listen. And he, he listens and... And he tries to learn some things, and he does, even from doddering old men like Cephalus. So, oh, I've learned a lesson from you. Now, answer me this little question. What do you mean by justice? And he can't do that. And, well, we have to do that ourselves. You start by listening. Why not treat everything, including ourselves, our own bodies, the nature of sexuality, uh, the stone in the driveway, why not treat everything the way we should treat each other? Namely, open and listening and trying to learn something everywhere. So there's my epistemology. Look at human sexuality with that eye, and you will see many things that you don't see with any other eye. You will see, for instance, that it is sacred. That if it's anything sacred, sexuality is sacred. If the word sacred means anything, if sacred means some sort of touching or interchange between God and humanity, some sort of quasi-sexual encounter between God and us, some sort of lovemaking between God and the human soul, if you have any sort of sacramental sensibility, whatever your theology, whether you're Catholic or not, uh, you can see sex as a sacrament. And whether you believe in the Catholic theology of the Eucharist or not, you, I assume, understand what it means. So there are, therefore, two most sacred things in this world, two doors through which God comes to create his greatest miracle. And one is the Eucharist and the other is sex. Because what comes in the Eucharist, once there was only bread and only wine, and that's only mortal, and then that's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has perfect humanity as well as perfect divinity. He didn't leave his human body back on earth. He took it to heaven. He's got it with him. And he has it in the Eucharist. So there, there is yourself in the Eucharist. You don't see it. But you didn't see his divinity when he was on earth either. And you don't see your own soul. Well, you know you have one. Well, that's, that's absolutely sacred. Well, sex almost is the same thing. Because what happens, or at least what can happen, and what often does happen, when a man and a woman make love, is that God creates a new immortal soul 
that will outlast all the galaxies, that has infinite worth, that cannot be calculated, and is worth more than all the universes that is possible to imagine, and is destined for infinite and eternal and unimaginable ecstasy in the presence of God forever. That's why sex is sacred. That's why you are sacred. That's the big picture. And the ultimate context of that, of course, is the meaning of human life. Sex is sacred because it procreates this thing that is such an incredible thing. Marriage is an image of this. The family is an image of this. Uh, motherhood and fatherhood are, are images of this. Uh, it's wonderful how the Bible turns upside down our images. I love that passage where, where Paul, in one of his letters, addresses the father, after whom all fatherhood on heaven and earth is named. We think God the Father is a metaphor. It isn't. It's literal. Our fatherhood, our biological human fatherhood, that's the metaphor. That's like when he's out in the, in the desert in John 6. The, uh, he says, I've got food. They're worried that there's no food. The disciples, oh, has he got sandwiches or something? Then he says, my food is to do the will of my father. They're disappointed. Oh, is that only that symbolic food? He pulls them up short. He says, that's real food. That's true food. That's food indeed. What does food mean? A sandwich? No. Food is love. Food is to love the will of the Father. To do the will of the Father. In the Bible, love is not a sentiment, but a deed. Something you are and do. Well, he turns things upside down. You see, we're the metaphor. He's not. So, the real marriage is the spiritual marriage, of which human physical marriage is a sacred symbol. The real family is the holy family, ultimately the trinity, of which the human family is an icon. That's the, the biblical picture. That's a very big picture. Now, not all societies in history have had that holy a view of sexuality and marriage and the family, but they have all had, every single successful human society in history has had a radically different and radically more sacred view of marriage and especially the family than modern Western secular post-Christian society. The most successful societies in history, measured by longevity and inner cohesion and inner peacefulness, have all had very high views of the family. The Mosaic, the Christian, the Islamic, the Confucian, and even the ancient Roman Empire. And the traditional enemies of these societies, such as Carthage in the Punic Wars, uh, or the Canaanites in Old Testament Hebrew history, uh, or the Aztecs in Mexico, which were invaded by the European Christians, Cortes. I make no apologies for Cortes, he was a, a greedy man, but what he found there and what the Jews found there and what the Romans found in Carthage was ritual human sacrifice to apparently the same God who wanted to eat human babies and their hearts were torn out of their living bodies and sacrificed to the altar and or their firstborn male children were commanded to commit suicide by walking into those fires uh, a radical how shall I put it supernatural evil view of the family to be combated by a kind of a supernatural good view that you have in the Christian and Jewish and Muslim traditions and a kind of a natural good view that you have in the, in the secular Roman tradition. The Romans were very pro-family people. Every pro-family society that has ever existed in the history of the world has been successful. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the only possible thing that'll work. But if you're the manager of a baseball team and every pinch hitter that's ever come up from this farm team has gotten a hit, and every single pinch hitter that's ever come up from that farm team is struck out. Which one are you going to choose? Because I'm already way over time, let me end with two things, each of which will take five minutes. First, let me tell you three stories. As I said at the beginning, I'm nothing like an expert on the issue of homosexuality. So I will give you data, three interesting encounters that I've had in dialogues with homosexuals that I've learned something from. I'm not that interested in dialogue where I'm the only teacher. I like somebody else to teach me. I'm selfish. And I like a mutual exchange. Uh, 
had a student who was a very good student, and he was gay. Let's use the word gay to designate a chosen lifestyle rather than just an orientation. And uh, I was perfectly relaxed in teaching him, and we're, it was about theology. Uh, and I taught him as I teach anyone else. And after the class, he said, uh, "You're not gay, are you?" I said, "No. Why?" He said, "Well, you, you treat me different than other people." I said, "Why?" I didn't think I did. He said, "Well, you you seem to lump all people in the same place and all sins in the same place." I said, "Well, I do. We've all got sins. I think what you do is sinful. I think a lot of things I do are sinful too. And I'm not going to judge that your sin is worse than my sin." He said, "You know, nobody ever said that to me before." I said, "You've got to be kidding." Well, people can hang around anyway. Well, that taught me that many homosexual activists have had a very bad experience from very bad Christians who have been hung up on this particular issue and treated them as somehow unworthy persons, as sinners of a sin that's unique. I don't think there's any sin that's unique. The only sin that's unique is the sin of Satan, which is pride, which is the worst sin of all, which is the only one that's eternal and unforgivable. A second encounter was with a very intelligent homosexual activist on the Boston College campus, and uh, I talked to him after he gave a talk. He was a homosexual Catholic, uh, he called himself, and I argued that that was a category confusion because a Catholic is someone who teaches what the church teaches, and he was teaching that the church was wrong about this, and I was arguing, well, what is it to be a Catholic? You have to believe that the church has at least theological and moral authority, so that covers this issue, so uh, you don't really believe the church has moral authority to teach error, do you? So if you're right, the church is wrong. So he was a philosopher, kind of logical, so I thought I could learn something from him. He said to me, oh, I know what you're going to say. The church teaches two things. It teaches you should love the sinner and hate the sin. I said, yeah. He said, we don't accept that. You don't know us very well if you, don't, if you think we're going to buy that. I said, no, I, I've heard that before. I don't expect you to buy that, but I, I don't understand why. Now, I know that what you believe, that what you do is not sinful, and we believe that it is, so of course we differ there. That's to be expected. But what I don't understand is why you're the only sinners, excuse the insult, I know you don't accept the label, but you're the only sinners who identify yourselves with your sin. Alcoholics don't say, I am an alcoholic, except at AA meetings where they're repenting of it. Cowards, like myself, do not say, I am a coward. I am a human being who has cowardly habits, alas. Uh, so why is this so different? I don't understand that. And he said, well, you don't realize how you've insulted me, but I'll be charitable and answer the question. I think, thank you very much. Uh, he said, I think I can make you understand that. Said, suppose, suppose it was the other way around. You were the small minority, and we were the majority. And you were not only straight, but you were also Catholic. And we said, well, we love you, but we hate what you do. So we're going to disapprove of it, and we're going to condemn it, but we love you. And we're going to discourage it. And we're going to frown on you whenever we see you carry a Bible. You can't do that in public. And go to a sacrament, or have priests, or churches. Uh, we're not going to persecute you. We love you, but we hate what you do. Wouldn't you feel personally threatened? And I looked at him and I said, you know, you're absolutely right. I, I never realized that before. If you said to me that we hate Catholicism, but we love Catholics, I would feel you're being a little hypocritical. So I understand now how you feel about what we say to you. Thank you very much. But, but do you realize what you've just said to me? He said, what? I said, you call yourself a homosexual Catholic. Now, I would feel threatened because Catholicism is my religion and that's my identity. That's me. So which of those two words is your religion? He said, well, I guess you're right. Maybe there's a better answer around, but that's... I think we both learned something from that encounter. We didn't convince each other, but we learned something. Uh, a third encounter was with homosexual thinker who was arguing that moral relativism was liberating and moral absolutism always led to intolerance, especially against his group. And I was arguing the opposite. I said, only us moral absolutists who believe that basic moral principles can never, never change and they're cross-cultural and absolutely universal, only we are, are your friends. 
And he said, no, you're the, you're the intolerant fascist bigots. And I said, no, 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 no. He said, 50 years ago, society thought that you were almost worthy to be whipped and killed. Hitler put you in concentration camps together with Jews. And we moral absolutists, we Catholics, teach that morality is unchanging. And we teach two things. Number one, all human beings are to be loved and treated with dignity. And homosexual activity is wrong. Now, you want the church to change that second teaching. But you don't want the church to change the first. But if the church changes some of its teaching, the whole thing becomes negotiable. And now it's up for grabs. And when society demonizes homosexuality again, instead of demonizing homophobia, then you're going to be put in the concentration camps again. And we're your only friends. Because we're the only ones that are going to stand up for you and say you can't do that to human beings. He said, well, I'll take my chances. Finally, three arguments. Why do I agree with what the church teaches about homosexuality? Number one, I'm a Catholic. The church claims to have the authority of Christ himself. He said to the apostles, he who hears you, hears me. If the church is wrong about that, it's an arrogant, blasphemous lie. It stinks in the eyes of God. And it's the responsibility of every Christian to denounce the Catholic church. If the church is what it claims to be, then it is the living, authentic voice of Jesus Christ. And no matter what Christ says to me, he's my Lord. If Christ said to me that uh, uh, Nazis are better than communists, or that dirt is really nourishing, and if I knew that Jesus Christ said that to me, I would have probably a crisis of faith in believing it. I had something of a crisis of faith in becoming a Catholic and believing the real presence in the Eucharist. That's not an easy thing to believe. People become Christians and believe that this man is God. That's not an easy thing to believe. Of course. But I believe it. What authority could be higher than, than that? If, if Christ isn't who he claims to be, God incarnate, then he's the most egotistic, blasphemous fool in human history. So if the church's teaching is the cargo of his ship, once we start throwing away some of the cargo, even a little bit of it, we haven't just thrown away a little bit of that cargo and left the rest. What we've done is made ourselves the captain. Once we start editing his mail instead of delivering it intact, we've made ourselves something other than the mail carrier. We've made ourselves the author. Second, commonsensical argument, the experience of tradition, the consensus of the human race, far from fallible, but the onus of proof, it seems to me, is always on the rebel, the neophyte. Chesterton has a wonderful little parable about this. He says, you come across some strange building in a, a forest clearing that's part of a large piece of property that you just bought, and you have no idea what it was erected for and what its purpose is, so your thought is, let's tear it down. <coughs> Foolish. Let's tear it down because we don't know what it's good for. You better wait until you do know what it's good for before you tear it down. It might be necessary. So those who want to tear down some moral tradition because they don't see its meaningfulness anymore are disqualifying themselves by their very premise. We don't understand it, therefore let's change it. Well, no. If you don't understand it, let it be. First understand it, then you'll know whether you want to change it or not. Finally, there's the testimony of individuals today. The testimony of people who have, let's say, exchanged the organization called Dignity for that called Courage. Or those who have gone through some program like Exodus International. Or who have, for some other reason, exchanged a homosexual lifestyle for a heterosexual lifestyle. They all feel liberated in some degree. However successful it is, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But all the liberations go in one direction, not the opposite. It's just like in the abortion controversy. Pro-choicers who become pro-lifers always feel liberated. Pro-lifers who become pro-choicers never do. They feel, they feel angry and alienated and whatnot. Uh, by the way, 75% of all women who have abortions interviewed 15 years later regret it. And by their own testimony, they say they did the wrong thing. So the experience of liberation, the experience of inner freedom, quite apart from the, the moral arguments about rightness and wrongness, is, I think, a very powerful psychological argument. 
And it makes sense because if the one who frees us is not our therapist or ourselves or our society or our philosophy teacher, but Jesus Christ, uh, he says that he has an instrument by which he frees you. He came into the world and he said, the truth shall make you free. He also said, I am the truth. And as a philosopher, I see that as the major and minor premise of the syllogism. And you can draw your own conclusion. All right, you sat very meekly through an hour. I must congratulate you. Now comes the interesting part. I welcome questions. Because the auditorium is so big and because there's so many of us and we're recording this, I would invite those of you who do have questions just to come up here to the microphone. Your concept of moral resolute, um, uh, moral absolute, I actually quite appreciate um, when you talk about earlier about moral evaluation, you have three rules, three maxims or whatever, um, the act, intention, and the circumstances. But later you, you talk about the concept of moral absolute. Um, when you have you describe the interaction you have with your, one of your students, mm -hmm. um, and you bring up the example of the Nazi 50 years ago, um, that they would um, prosecute put gays or homosexuals into concentration camp, and you suggested that as Catholic, the moral absolute is you love one another. Mm -hmm. But I would like to suggest then what happened to that moral absolute back in Crusade time when Catholics suppressed um, suppressed people that do not convert to, um, well, not so much Catholic, I guess, the whole Christianity, um, suppress those people that are not, um, would not conform to what they are bringing. I would like to know what, how that more absolute um, apply. The second question is... Can I ask the first one first? Oh. Uh, because I'm very forgetful. Okay. Uh, the church being manned by human beings is guilty of perpetual hypocrisy. Except for the saints, it does not practice what it preaches. And therefore, it is the world's most reliable institution because it never changes its preaching to conform to its practice. All the rest of us do. We rationalize. The church doesn't. Just like the Old Testament, uh, of all religious literature, Jewish literature is the one that's empirically, it, well, I won't say it proves, but a very strong clue that this is the divine revelation because it's utterly unflattering. It, it, it condemns uh, the behavior of God's chosen people. It doesn't exalt it. So, uh, take a more spectacular example in the Crusades, which were a, a mixed bag. It was originally a defensive war against Muslim aggression, but the horrible sack of Byzantium and, and the rest made it a total mess. I'm not defending the Crusades, but take even something worse. Take, take the Borgia Popes. Basically, the Mafia bought the papacy for a while. Those Popes, who probably weren't even Christians, for instance, uh, Lucretia Borgia's husband, uh, one of the greatest poisoners in history, uh, and he had mistresses. And he was very unpopular. He didn't change the law, saying, most right now have mistresses. Uh, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. So you can't even evaluate the behavior, the horrible behavior of many Christians as bad unless you're a moral absolutist. You see, the rule is absolute. The behavior is lousy, according to the rule. I guess, so, I guess that's why, perhaps that is the moral absolutist um, concept is why recently, like, in the past hundred years, suddenly infallibility of the papacy became such a popular concept. Um, I'm no, not, not suddenly. Nothing becomes sudden in, in the church. church is very slow and mm -hmm. old. Uh, the, the, very, the, pope, the pope from the first century, from the second century, was treated as infallible. Rome has spoken, the case is closed. It's a very old formula. I, I don't think the, the, the Pope have been treated infallible. I thought always that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he's yeah. infallible, of which he have not, haven't spoke for the ex cathedra since, he's, since he sit on the throne. That's not the only infallible formula. Also, he can invoke apostolic authority. Come in Vatican I, though. So is that a part of a... That's a technical theological question that I am that not is, an expert not really, on, so okay. I can't give you. You know what? Let's put that technical. What you say is a technical concept aside, and talk about another. That is also about a moral absolute. Is that you? You um, place squarely the the hatred of the act of homosexuality as a moral absolute with love your neighbor, love human being, love one another. But when so you're, you're putting very equal weight because they are both moral absolute. 
Um, so what, like, my question is, how do you qualify something as moral absolute um, when, as far as I re recall, just not, I can't remember what, what it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, the liturgical year gospel selection was there were only two moral absolute is love God above everything and love your neighbor, one another. Yes, right? so and the Lord defines that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the Lord, yeah, it's the Lord that, that how do you, how do you love? Uh, you don't love by murdering, you don't love by bearing false witness, you don't love by adulterizing. Uh, so there's not only not a contradiction between hating sins and loving sinners, but loving sinners necessarily results in hating sins. If you have a cancer that's destroying your body, then if I don't hate that cancer, I don't really love you. And the more I love you, the more I'm going to hate the cancer. That's what sin is, cancer to the soul. Um, I'm not sure what guideline can I take from the scripture then to define what is sin. Um, Plenty of guidelines. It's, nobody had any trouble with that until they went to seminary. <laughs> the Bible is very clear. I never went to seminary myself. Congratulations. Um, I don't plan. I, I, I dream about being a priest when I was a kid, and then I just like the color wrote, if, if you ask me. But, uh, um, uh, One more quick question. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm still not like then. How like what? Back to your moral evaluation. How do you? Um, how how can? You, I I, don't, I still don't see a clear link as to the three evaluation that you use: act, intention, and circumstances, and the the concept of moral absolute as to link okay. to act of homosexuality. Acts are objective and absolute. Intentions are subjective and absolute. Circumstances are objective and relative. So there is a place for moral relativism in circumstances. Uh, acts of war which today would be irresponsible in some past time might be responsible because you don't kill civilians, but today with mass weapons you do. So I think things like pacifism and capital punishment make much more sense in a nuclear age than they did in the past. That's an example of the relativity of circumstances. Or a homosexual, a faithful homosexual marriage, uh, which is a mixture of agape and eros, and which is motivated by unselfish love, is a mixed bag. There is a good intention there, but it's the wrong thing. No, the, 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 no, the thing, the act itself, what you do. Euthanasia is usually motivated by compassion, which is a good thing. But the act itself is an act of murder, an act of playing God. I shall decide whether you live or die. That's a very bad act, even though it can be motivated by a very good and loving motive. So you can't simply say, as long as the motive is all right, it's okay. We don't say that when we choose a surgeon. I'm just using two different examples of acts which may be motivated by love, but which nevertheless objectively are the wrong act. Number one would be active euthanasia, killing somebody out of compassion. Number two would be a loving homosexual act, which is not merely selfish, but also has something of the agape in it. And I think it's very obvious that that all very often exists. I think it's simply a stereotype to say that homosexuals are all selfish, promiscuous idiots. I think genuine and unselfish love can exist in that relationship, but it's a wrong relationship. I could, I could, I could possibly have agape to my dog and have sex with my dog. And my motive, if I were sufficiently confused, could be very, very loving. But that's a disordered relationship. I'm doing something that's reserved for my wife that ought not to be given to my dog. Now, I'm not saying homosexuals have sex with dogs. Please don't make that connection. I'm just giving you three very different examples of the general principle that rightness in one of these three dimensions does not excuse wrongness in another. would like to know if you've already, if you haven't discussed this, I'd like to know if you agree with me that it was a mistake in this and other countries that, well, in this country before 69, private consensual homosexual activity was a criminal action. 
in my opinion, such activity is no better or no worse than uh, regular excessive drunkenness, uh, mis constantly misusing or occasionally misusing God's name or Jesus' name or obesity. Um, obviously those other, uh, or smoking cigarettes for that matter. Obviously the activities I just described are all currently legal in this country and I presume nobody in a quote pro-life or pro-family organization favors criminalization of any of those activities. Yeah. Uh, that all stated, in my opinion, I would have more respect for individuals who hold executive positions in say Campaign Life Coalition, Focus on the Family, Canadian Family Action Coalition, and others in this and other countries. If the members of these organizations signed a manifesto stating, among other things, they will not seek to recriminalize homosexual activity, or in the case of abortion, they will not seek to recriminalize all forms of artificial birth control or all forms of private consensual sexual activity. Mm -hmm. um, do you agree with what I, the yes. sentence I just stated? Yes, for practical political purposes. Yeah, we're living in a pluralistic society. Such such a thing would 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 have. Even, even if all those acts are seriously sinful, to criminalize them would be a bit like the Inquisition. That is, using physical force to compel people to behave morally, which does much more harm than good, and it's a total misunderstanding of morality, which has to be free. Thanks for your talk today. I had a question for you. I was wondering if perhaps you think that, or how you respond to this, that uh, moral absolutism, perhaps its principal function uh, is sort of the, uh, insofar as your threefold uh, interpretation, our, our method of interpreting uh, moral absolute is in fact um, an ideological uh, way of uh, perpetuating an institutional authority of some sort. In the case of, let's say, a papal authority, we can take one hand, let's say the Veritas Splendor, which states a moral absolute, and then uh, when we go to actually it's sort of the day-to-day the -day functionality of explaining our morality, we must resort to a very relativistic or subjective uh, manner or methodology. And I'd wonder if you would suggest what the dangers perhaps are in, in uh, that subjective discourse that we must ultimately turn to because we have such a differing you know, idea of what a moral absolute is. I don't think I understand the question because I thought the way you started, you were asking, isn't it true that these absolutes are used for ideological purposes of oppression. Uh, and then I was going to answer, well, that's like saying the mathematical uh, multiplication table is, is oppressive. That's kind of adolescent philosophy. But then you say almost the opposite, that in Veritatis Splendor, the Pope says that moral absolutes must be applied in a very relative way to different situations, mm -hmm. and you think that opens the door to relativism. But I'm, I'm questioning perhaps the invocation of moral absolutism as sort of an, you know, an underlying... Uh, Persuasive tool in a, in, you know, in a, uh, more, in a moral discourse, and wonder what the value of it is because, as we can see, it, it I think, can be used it's, for I good think that in, in, in a word, honesty. I think if we're true to our own consciences, we'll realize that we have to be moral absolutists in order to be moral at all. Right. Okay. So, do you think there's any danger that, let's say, people that you wouldn't characterize as honest individuals yet have a persuasive forum in which they are able to, uh, to perpetuate a moral discourse that relies upon moral absolutes, yet perhaps, you know, isn't true. No matter how you finish that sentence, I'm going to say yes. Isn't there a danger in a person who is not honest? Yeah, no matter what you say beyond that, okay. the answer is yes. And so how do, how do we as, as common laymen, you know, make the differentiation between, you know, someone who is, you know, uh, is preaching a truth and, and not a truth? You just use all the tools you have. There's no litmus paper that I know of. Very good. I mean, the church claims to be a litmus paper about the first of these ingredients. It does. What is the will of God about human life? Uh, nobody, not the Pope, not, not the Church, nobody claims to have litmus paper for the second and third ingredient. That we just use the best intuition and honest uh, judgment that we can. Very good. Thanks very much. Hi. I actually really much uh, enjoyed your talk, and I thank you very much for coming here. Um, I have a question actually about the uh, example you listed in terms of the Aztec society and how they've become a, an unsuccessful society because of their um, cultural, religious, or whatever types of practices. Not unsuccessful, dead. Yes, well, does that Murdered. mean... Does that mean <laughs> That's all, pretty unsuccessful. Yeah. Does that mean all societies who die or will eventually die be unsuccessful? No, no but, I, but I think that societies that kill die. Societies that kill die. 
The Third so, Reich was supposed to last a thousand years. It lasted 15. So these Spanish conquistadors who did kill many Aztecs, are they deserving of death? Not as much as the Aztecs. Okay. They, they thought, Cortes at least thought, although many of his men were simply greedy for gold, uh, Cortes thought that he was doing the will of God. I yes. think he was rather crude and barbaric, but I think he had mixed motives. Uh, if you read the actual accounts, which are not glossed over, uh, they're not they're not papered over. They show the faults. If you read the actual accounts, who's who's the guy that wrote the? This is, wasn't Cortez himself, but it was one of the soldiers there. Uh, he it's like the Bible. He tells you the bad side and the good side. So I believe him when he says Cortez was on the one hand a holy man, on the other hand a cruel uh, barbarian. Okay, so do you think there are any other societies that are deserving of death who, who have hurt others and now should die? All. All societies? Name one society in the history of the world that lasts forever. One civil society that lasts forever. They all go rotten. I understand that would definitely be true. So how would that make the Aztecs any more unsuccessful or at all unsuccessful? Well, they were rather, they were rather spectacularly fate. unsuccessful. When, when Cortes came upon them, uh, it was during this festival where 28,000 young men were ritually slaughtered by uh, having them march uh, from all four points of the compass uh, in line stretching farther than the eye could see from dawn to dusk to this central pyramid where the priest would ritually tear their uh, hearts out with a stone knife and throw their bodies to the hyenas. That could be a very beautiful ritual. If one or two. Please don't ever invite me to your house for dinner. <laughs> Are you Next question, please. I have one more. I still have one more question. No, um, I'm sorry. Uh, there, are, there are. I'm not a tyrant, I'm, but I would prefer to take a, another question. I think there's either a misunderstanding or a, a simple communications gap here. Hi, I have two questions. Um, number one, when you said that um, Catholics can be regarded as a friends of homosexual people, and that you have preached in your church that it is not wrong to be, well, it is a sin, you say, right? To practice sodomy, to be homosexual, homosexual sin is like everyone else. Um, not to be, to do. Sin is not what you be, sin is what you do. Okay, well, to me, there's no, no difference. That's what but, the conversation was about. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go on with your question. Right, um, my question is that, um, and when you said that without, without you guys, without um, Catholics preaching, um, I guess, tolerance, to um, homosexuality and these kind of acts, you know, gay people will go back to concentration camps. So you think that you're being very... Didn't say we would. I'm sorry, I'm not finished. I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to correct you. I want to ask you, how dare you take credit for the amount of acceptance that we have of homosexuality, homosexuality nowadays? And the fact that homosexuality supposedly, homosexual, homosexual people supposedly enjoy more human rights when as people, we all should have the same kind of rights, right? And any type of homosexual acceptance that we have in society nowadays is not brought about by any kind of religious preaching, but by very long, arduous, and very difficult political um, protests by gay people and other people who support the fact that gay people should have rights. How dare you take credit for something like that and to generalize and make jokes about it? Well, I agree with much of what you say. I do not take much credit for it. I don't think Catholics have been in the forefront of any of the moral causes sufficiently, including the cause of tolerance. My only point was the theoretical point that we're the only people who have moral absolutes, and therefore we think that tolerance is one of those absolutes, and if you don't believe in any moral absolutes, then tolerance is simply a fashion. It's what you feel like doing or what you want. But that's not a... a a dam against a change of mind in, in society. I use the example of Nazi Germany just because it's so spectacular. Here's the most civilized and educated nation on earth, which in one generation became incredibly barbaric. It can happen. Human, human hearts are very, very fickle. And they're always looking for a scapegoat. Whether it's homosexuals or Jews or Catholics or whites or blacks or homophobes or whatever. So I think a, a, a rigid and absolutistic demand on tolerance and love and, and human rights is the only guarantee that any group has against that wickedness in human nature. 
I noticed that you have used the word tolerance many, many times in your explanation to me, whereas I've used the word acceptance. When you say tolerance, you mean there's something deviant. Anyways, my second question is when you say, when you're talking about abortion, and you said that um, many women have felt liberated when they have converted from, um, what's it from you? From choice to pro-life. Exactly. And um, you have said that 75% of women who did go through with abortion now regret it and say that they have done the wrong thing. I'd like to know where did you get your, where did you get this type of information? What are your sources? A book by a man named Reardon called, uh, two books actually, one called Rachel Weeping and one called Aborted Women Silent No More. Okay, and do you think that they are sociologically correct sources? Pardon? I mean, where, how were these surveys conducted? By independent secular psychological institutes. I'm not sure of the details, but you can check that out yourself. But I accept your distinction between tolerance and acceptance. Tolerance does have a kind of prejudicial term to it. We don't tolerate good things. We tolerate bad things for the sake of good things. And Catholics believe... That